Welcome everyone to the, I am prone to hyperbole. So I think this may be a historic conversation of talking about this crazy idea that when I first had it several months ago, even I thought, don't even bother wasting any thought on it. But it kept sticking in my head of having a constitutional amendment. Originally, my first thought was to ban pollution. But now I see there's other work going on about guaranteeing a right to a clean environment, but something in the constitution. And the more I think about it, there are some big problems that I can't, that, that seem seem at first insurmountable, but maybe are possible. And, and I think this will be stuff that we talk about is how do you define pollution or how do you enforce it? But the big thing is how, how do you pass it? And the more that I've learned about the history of the 13th Amendment is a big um, parallel to me. And the more I learn about it, you know, I, I to my not, I'm not proud of this, but I generally would think of the 13th Amendment as like, well, slavery was bad in the past. And as we've had progress, it was inevitable that it would go away and that the amendment would pass. And it was like obvious. And the more I've learned about it through, especially through reading Jim Oakes's stuff, it was incredibly difficult and at no point a slam dunk. And then also talking to Michael about what the differences between constitutional law and statutory law and things like that. Well, anyway, I want to get into talk about the constitution, the, the viability, if if it is viable, of a constitutional amendment addressing pollution and addressing the environment. Uh, and from a historical perspective, with that parallel, from a legal perspective, and hopefully, if it makes sense to try to do something like this, what the strategy would be. And you're two of the, of the several people. So Tia Nelson may show up in the middle of this. And uh, there's Maya K. Van Rossum, who can't make this one, but she's working on a, on a green amendment and has been for at least a decade. Anyway, I'll, uh, so I've, I've talked about Michael and Jim, but maybe you guys could introduce yourselves. Uh, maybe Jim first. Hey, I'm Jim Oaks. I'm a historian uh, focusing on the history of slavery and anti-slavery, and more recently, the history of how emancipation was achieved in the Civil War, and as you say, how difficult it was. Sure. And Michael? And I'm Michael Hertz. I'm a professor at the Cardozo Law School in New York City, uh, where I've been for many decades. Before that, I was a lawyer at the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, here in New York. Um, and I teach and write about uh, environmental law, administrative law, and constitutional law. I may be prone to hyperbole, but I believe this could be a historic conversation. Partly because, in Jim, in your book of uh, Crooked Path to Abolition, on the sixth chapter, if I remember right, you begin talking about Henry Stanton in, I, I think, 1839, sitting down to conceive of what became the 13th Amendment. And right. I think it would be worthwhile to share a bit how impossible it seemed at that time then became, as I understand, yet more impossible. Now, as we know, the, there's no secret to the ending. The 13th Amendment did pass. And I want to give that for context. And then some of the questions I want to get to later are, um, how does the challenge of passing an amendment look? Is it possible? Would it be effective if it, if it could pass? Or would it be a distraction? Could we succeed without it? Would it help us succeed more? And then there's all these big open questions to get to. I hope maybe in this call, if if things go well, maybe more it 
we might continue with more calls or we might find out that not worth continuing, could be. But how would we pass such a thing? How do we define pollution? Can it be enforced? Would, would we end up repeating something like the prohibition? Uh, if we stop polluting, let's say we did succeed, would Russia and China outcompete us and uh, put us at a detriment? So there's all these open questions. But could we, Jim, do you mind sharing a bit about Henry Stanton and what sure. it looked like then and how things happened? Well, he was actually pretty optimistic when he gave that speech to the annual convention of the American Anti Slavery Society in 1839. Uh, he, he proposed a series of laws. Uh, Stanton, by the way, is 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 less known than than his famous wife Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who uh, is a, a, a famous feminist, early feminist. Um, but at the time, he was just as well known as a as a prominent abolitionist who thought about the law and thought about how how you use the law to get slavery abolished, and so. For him, a 13th Amendment would be the end product of a series of moves that he proposed that the northern states uh, undertake uh, uh, to alter the balance of power between the northern states and the southern states. And so uh, he, he said, you know, if we ban slavery from the territories and make sure that every slave who sets foot in the northern states is immediately emancipated and we regulate the interstate slave trade and shut down the coastal slave trade and do all these things and pass all these laws and abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. We will isolate the South and and the northern states have been growing more rapidly. The northern economy is more dynamic than the southern economy. We don't admit any more new slave states to the Union and we pressure the southern states, beginning with the border states, to one by one abolish slavery on their own, uh, eventually slavery will be abolished that way. And if they don't do it that way, you know, at a certain point, there will be enough free states to override the remaining slave states. And he was optimistic that, he was optimistic that slavery was declining in places like Delaware and Maryland and Virginia the border states so that gradually they would do what the other states had done already, which is abolish slavery on their own. And eventually the balance of power between the slave and free states would be sufficient to ratify a constitutional amendment if the remaining slave states fail to do what he thought they would do, given the intrinsic weaknesses of a slave economy compared to the the the, the dynamism of the northern free labor economy. And, you know, uh, that was 1839, and in some ways it seemed naive, you know, to think that 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 was even possible. Um, Nine new slave states had been admitted to the Union since the the founding of the Union, and... uh, uh, in the 1840s, the Mexican War opened, you know, a vast new territory that looked like slavery was going to expand, and the number of slave states would be increased again. Well, on the other hand, there was this historic trajectory he was relying on that the 
uh, you know, uh, immigrants don't go to the South. They come to the North by the millions. And, you know, the population of the North was increasing. The cities were increasing in size. The, the, the power of the Northern states in Congress was clearly overwhelming uh, the power of the Southern states. You know, they admit California in 1850, and that's the tipping point when suddenly there are more free states than there are slave states. And then they admit Minnesota and Oregon and the Civil War comes and Kansas and Nevada, and they use the war to push a whole bunch of states to abolish slavery on their own. That includes Maryland and Tennessee or Louisiana, Missouri, and by January of 1865, the scenario he envisioned was that Stanton envisioned in 1839 seemed to have played itself out, not in quite the way he expected. He wasn't counting mm -hmm. on a war. But by January of 1865, the balance of slave and free states was 27 to 9, three-fourths. And that was enough to ratify a constitutional amendment. If you could get Congress, if you could get Congress, mostly the House of Representatives, to do it, that's what Steven Spielberg's movie Lincoln uh, is all about, that last debate in Congress. And, and it's it was it's good. It's, it's, he's right. That's, it has to get out of Congress, gets out of Congress. There are now enough states, enough free states to ratify. So on the one hand, it's it, it looked... Naive and impossible in 1839. On the other hand, they did get it done. They did all those things that, you know, they did abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. They did ban it from the territories. They did refuse to return fugitive slaves. They did all those things. No, uh, su sufficient provocation to cause a civil war, and the war just accelerated that project. So, no, uh, I, I, we've talked about this in other conversations you and I have had, Josh, about how, you know, the only, the parallel that I would see with your project is you know, specify, specify a legislative project, you know, that could get you to where you want to go. And if at the end, it's possible to push it one last step, the constitutional yeah. amendment. Yeah. But that would be the last step. That's the end of the process. But before then, a whole lot of things are necessary uh, and and, and uh, more achievable in certain ways. Yeah, definitely. When I, I've realized that the first step is not go to Congress or go to the Senate and, okay. for, and try to work with them. I think democracy, it's got to come from the... If, right now, the support for decreasing pollution, I think, is latent at best among the United States population that, I mean, there were, there were whole states that were free in 1839, but I don't think there's any, it's kind of, here it's, it's very infused. Everyone, it's possible that every American believes that more pollution leads to a better, well, the things that pollution brings improve life. All right. So there's no like state that's like the equivalent of a free state today. Right. So that way of looking at things isn't it doesn't work so well uh maya who, well the, i i always tell my students the abolitionists did not have to persuade northerners to dislike slavery they had to persuade northerners that disliking slavery was a priority 
Can you clarify? Northerners, by the time Stanton was speaking, they'd all grown up in societies that had long since abolished slavery. They read anti-slavery tracts in their school books in the Columbia Order. They heard it in the speeches. They on the stump. They heard it in their, you know, in their Sunday sermons. They just absorbed anti-slavery and were kind of proud of having abolished slavery. And they took it as a given that abolishing slavery was a good thing. But that didn't mean they saw just like probably a majority of Americans think a cleaner environment is a good thing, is something desirable. But that doesn't but they had to be persuaded that it was a priority, that it was something that all of a sudden became urgent, you know, and that was what Stanton was up to. He was trying to persuade uh uh Northerners that this is something you really need to be concerned about because if you if you don't take the threat seriously, you know, they're gonna prevent you from you know, they're going to gag your petitions. They're going to, you know, send slave catchers through the streets of your towns and cities and impose slave law on your states. They're going to gobble up the best lands in the territories. You have a stake in opposing slavery. And I think, you know, that may be parallel. Yeah, that sounds that. very parallel. I mean, it's you have a stake in opposing it, and you could lose a lot if you don't. I mean, one of the big takeaways that I'm seeing, I don't think I've voiced this to you yet, is that if you have a constitution that guarantees life, liberty, property, and other inalienable rights, and it must defend the rights of people who can trample those rights, then you have a house divided that, that cannot stand, if I'm not right. paraphrasing too much from Lincoln, that you can't keep it from expanding... I mean, you're going to have fugitive slave laws. You're going to have people who demand protecting certain rights in one state in another state. And so you can't have both at the same time. If we have a constitution, so the way I'm looking at it, I'm translating it to now, is that if, we, if, if I have a constitution that guarantees life, liberty, property, other inalienable rights, and guarantees the right for someone else to um, profit from things that cause me cancer, that deprive me of life, liberty, and property, that's can't. That's that irreconcilable. Just doesn't work. It's an irreconcilable conflict. Yes. Yeah, and that conflict, I think, related to the current chest. Yes, that's what I keep feeling like. And so, people talk about me as trying to live my lifestyle as as unplugging the fridge and unplugging the apartment from the grid as an experiment, but it seems to be working out pretty well. Uh, You know, not all the way, but I've gone. I'm polluting a lot less than I was before, and I, I feel like to call opposing pollution extreme if to my view i'm i'm trying to reconcile a conflict in the constitution to call lincoln extreme for saying no slaves at all i don't think that would be extreme if you have slavery anywhere you're going to have it's going to try to grow i mean unless the market really undermines it uh but this conflict is i mean i think people before long before the civil war said that saw that a civil war was almost inevitable unless it could be resolved through non-war means. So to me, there's this problem in the Constitution. It's got its conflict. Maybe this would be a good time to bring Michael in. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't see it as quite... <clears throat> the, the conflict you're seeing in the Constitution 
I wouldn't say that the Constitution protects, you know, coal companies' rights to poison us. It doesn't. And Congress, and it puts slightly differently, Congress has full authority to shut down coal plants, right? Coal plants could not say, wait, you're violating my constitutional rights by shutting me down. Um, and so and there is, um, you know, whereas there was serious question about Congress's authority and willingness both to, to, uh, to outlaw slavery That's before true. the 13th right. Amendment. Right. It's a different kind of setting. The other thing that you know struck me so much about what Jim was saying at, at some point along the way, Jim, you used the phrase "they used the war to eliminate slavery in some of these states." Right? I, I mean, you would without the Civil War, you don't have the Thirteenth Amendment. Is that fair to say? Right. And yes. So but, that's but the war itself wasn't enough. It wasn't right, but it was necessary, if not sufficient. And that's a awfully yeah. high price to pay. Right. It's right. a sign That's... of just what a what a challenge right. uh, might be. Um, right. So so I actually think it was probably harder to get the 13th Amendment done than it would be to get a right to a clean environment, some sort of environmental uh, amendment into the Constitution. But I think <clears throat> it still would be enormously challenging. And at this present moment, I mean, you, you've gone into this conversation with the perspective that this is a long-term project yeah. um, and would be decades away. Uh, right. I think that's emphatically true because right at the moment with America politics, what they are, and the absolute refusal of either side to give the other one credit for anything and therefore the absolute refusal to collaborate on anything, you can't get two-thirds of House or Senate and you can't get three-quarters of the states. Because if one side's for it, the other side's against it, period. And it's just a non-starter. So, so now that's a, that's a particular moment in history. And the divisions, I think, are less profound and built in and structural than was the slavery debate. Um, uh, but it does mean that in the short term, this is just an absolute non-starter. Uh -huh. I don't hear you to be saying anything different, Josh. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, I... For a while, I was playing around with the idea of making a mission of mine to uh, help pass a constitutional amendment banning pollution with support from all uh, ratified by to overwhelming support and ratified by all 50 states. That yeah. was like, why not, you know, go for what we want? But then I started realizing something's outside of my control, and I don't know how much existing industries will protect themselves. I mean, Eric Williams' book on capitalism and slavery talks a lot about how how much industries will hang on with what they can even past their providing uh making the world a better place so i thought really i should say i want to help lead the united states to a place where there's overwhelming support for such an amendment and that's going to the people yes, yes. and it may be state by state it may, but i want to i want to help people realize what i've found which is that the less i pollute higher my quality of life, not lower. And I think most people equip, like just as one measure, I think a lot of people consider uh, flying, one flight will bring you to a distant relative. But in my experience, flying in general will lead you to live flying distance away so that you see them less and it costs more and it pollutes more to see them. Whereas if flying weren't an option, we would still live, I think people don't, people say they don't want to spend time with their family all the time, but I think we want to live a certain distance away, far enough that we can't see each other every day but close enough that we can see each other <laughs> on the holidays. 
Because <laughs> it's hard to get be... that one just right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think right. that might have hit me during the pandemic or... when I was yeah. at my mom's house, like nonstop. Right, right. And yeah. so if we have airplanes, we'll live flying distance away. If we don't have airplanes, we'll live, you know, train or driving distance away. And if we don't have internal combustion engines, we'll live tr electric train or, or biking distance away or horse distance away. But in, in any case, visiting will be easier. I think there'll be more family, not less. I think businesses, we think, oh, we can enter new markets with an airplane. But it also, but flying in general means we all have to compete all the time with everyone everywhere. And so it makes, it, it, it lowers, it both forces us to compete, but not in a way that increases innovation. Anyway, this is some stuff yeah. that I've realized. Today. Right, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. There's, it's, <laughs> I mean, I guess I, I am perfectly willing to go along with the sense that <laughs> there are net benefits. You sometimes seem to be saying there are only benefits, right? There are no costs. Well, and, yeah. and I don't think that's true. But, um, and I don't think you'll ever convince a majority of Americans that it's true. But the net benefits point is enough. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, there are cultures that don't pollute nearly as much as us. There are indigenous cultures that have been around for a long time. And people look at them and say, well, we don't want to live like that because you get one cut, no antibiotics, you get amputate, you know, anesthesia, it's terrible. But they look at us, so, I mean, they, they remain. And, uh, and the question on my mind is, can we take the best of our situation and the best of their situation and leave the worst of both and have a better, in every way, situation? It seems possible. So that would mean, that might be the same thing as what you're saying about a net benefit is let's keep the things that are net benefits or overall benefits as well. Uh, if a lot of people felt that way, I think it would make, I think there'd be a lot more taste for guardrails, for legislation that said, um, you know, you can't do, I mean, everyone, I think everyone agrees you can't pour, it doesn't benefit anyone to pour mercury in rivers yeah. as we once did. And it feels like whenever, you know, here's a story. When I was in Michael's office recording and we're talking about uh, the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, he simply turns and picks it up and because I think it's your bread and butter. It's like what you, you maybe didn't even need to pick it up and just quote it. Um, it seems like it, it went really far, and yet it's going backward now. I mean, we're peeling back the protections through legislation or through judicial interpretation, things like that. that that's why I feel like it feels like the Constitution is the right place for something that says this is everything derives from this. Well, look, in principle, you know, the having something in the Constitution <clears throat> gives really significant advantages because it, um, for one thing, it's hard to get rid of, right? It, or another, you know, it's an expression of some supermajoritarian consensus. It not only expresses it, but it helps create it, right? I say the educate the Constitution is in part a kind of educational document. People's understanding of what fundamental American commitments and values are are reflected by what they see in the Constitution, um, and, and all those things are 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 and and in many settings, putting it in the Constitution gives the political branches the power to deal with a problem. 
So th those are just indisputable, fantastic advantages of having something in the Constitution, right? And, yeah. and, and I don't dispute those at all. The point about having the power to deal with it is less critical here, okay? It's more will than authority that's missing uh, in terms of an absence of an adequate legislative response to the problems. Um, but the point about the permanence and so on and the educational value, that's real. So, for example, I mean, if you compare the present day to 50 years ago, um, there was just extraordinary political consensus about yeah. environmental legislation and environmental regulation in the 1970s, you know, sort of beginning in the late 60s and then this just stunning flurry of legislative activity in the 70s. So, the, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a law about environmental impact statements, that's passed at the end of 1969. Richard Nixon, Republican Richard Nixon, signs it into law on January 1st, 1970, right? The first law of the new decade. That, that's a big PR opportunity. And what he wanted to do was sign this new law. Richard Nixon creates the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. The Clean Air Act is 1970. The Clean Water Act is 1972, though passed over Nixon's veto. Uh, but nonetheless, there was two-thirds in both houses to override the presidential veto of the Water Act. And there was a whole... All of American environmental law is passed, is adopted in the 1970s. There was nothing before 1970, and there's been only very little, a couple of big exceptions, but very, very little since 1980. And that was a period of just stunning political unanimity, it could have, could be, you know, that was our chance. That's when we should have had a constitutional amendment to protect the environment. <laughs> People were more focused on the legislative side. And then, of course, over time, the consensus evaporates. The requirements start to pinch a little bit. Um, other things pop up and so on. Um, so there's one possible story that says we took inadequate advantage of that moment of political unanimity. Um because we thought we, you know, we were focused on getting the bills passed, but maybe that was the moment to get a constitutional amendment. But the so, the, the history of what happened to the 14th and 15th amendments in the late 19th and early 20th century is a salutary reminder that even if it's in the Constitution, if the will isn't there, it can be, there's all sorts of ways in which it can be undermined. And it took a long time to reverse the the systematic undermining of those of those amendments, and it it's also an indication of how careful you have to be about how you would word the amendment, right? Because the the fifteenth amendment, the fifteenth amendment says you can't discriminate in voting on the basis of race, but it did not create a right to vote. Had it said there is a constitutional right to vote for every male in the United States, it would have been a lot harder for the Southern states to do what they did at the end of the 19th century because the wording the, you, the wording only said you can't discriminate on the basis of race. But what if you discriminate on the basis of literacy or, you know, grandfather's clauses or poll taxes and all sorts of ways that you could systematically get rid of black voters because there was no right to vote, right? They, they didn't word it the right way in that sense. And you know, and a Supreme Court, you know, a Supreme Court could, you know, we're not aware of what a Supreme Court can do to undermine rights. Yeah. We're, you know, so even a constitutional amendment, while it it does set a standard, as Michael said, it, it it's not necessarily going to 
do what you want to do. If if, no, if, of course. if the will isn't there, the will has to be there just as Michael said. No. I mean, none of these things are self-executing. So. Right. Right. So that tells right. me that the, the unanimity, the political unanimity, the unanimity, the bipartisan support. When, so when Nixon passed these things, was he being craven and, and saying, well, this is what the popular people want? Some, or does he genuinely believe in his heart? Because I feel like when I read about Barry Goldwater, even some of the stuff, even stuff from Ronald Reagan about some environmental things that they felt, and also um, about the protections of life, liberty, and property that appeal, I think, strongly to conservatives and to libertarians. Was it genuine support for these things, or were they just like getting votes? Well, I think is a mix. And, you know, Richard Nixon's a complicated guy and with a tricky psychology <laughs> and what his underlying <laughs> motivations are is, you know, I'm not sure I can speculate. But so here's here's one example. Um, it, it was at least in part, put it this way, had it not been the politically savvy thing to do, whatever personal commitment he had to it, would not have been enough to get him to do it, uh -huh. I think. I would say that much. And so one of the things you see, so here's just sort of a tiny example. So the Clean Air Act of 1970, which adopted the first limitations on automobile emissions, right, tailpipe standards. And it, it's, it's still to this day the most famous example in American environmental law of what's called technology forcing, and that is... It is a standard thing in, in environmental statutes to require polluters to do the best they can, in essence, use the best available technology. Um, but what the what the 70 Clean Air Act said was invent something. OK, you you you. You're polluting too much. You need to figure out a way to reduce your emissions by 90 percent. We know you can't do it now. We're going to set a deadline, and by that deadline, you have to, or we're not going to let you sell cars, right? Now, was it a bluff? Yeah, maybe, maybe not, right? But the, the car industry said, yeah, okay, we think we can do that. We think we can get there by 1980. And then Richard Nixon and Ed Muskie, who was the head of the relevant Senate committee and a potential presidential candidate, right? He did run in 72. Um got into this sort of battle where they each wanted to prove they were the better environmentalists. And Muskie said, well, let's knock it back to 78. At which point, you know, Nixon said, well, let's knock it back to 77. You know, and they went back, they ended up 1975, right? You've got to reduce by 1975 because both of these people, you know, situating themselves for the 72 presidential run wanted to be seen as the real, the sturdiest, the most uh, committed environmentalist. Just a very different period. But also, you know, Nixon is, is kind of the last president to reflect what had been a, a traditionally a Republican commitment to environmentalism that was not really part of the Democratic Party traditions. It was Teddy Roosevelt and those people who were who were most strongly associated with environmentalism. And and right. so it's not it's not it's not like Nixon had to, you know, you know, uh, you know, abandon all principle and become an environmentalist. That was part of the tradition of party he was part of, and that 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 was going to change very rapidly with the age of Reagan, things like that. But yep. but 
you know, he really was a reflection of a long-standing Republican Party commitment. And that's why it was possible to get the kind of votes that Michael was talking about in Congress. When I think of the of the switch back, I mean, a lot of people would point to Reagan, but to me, there was uh, I mean, there are many many reasons I'm sure, but one big thing was that the the industry was I feel like a sleeping giant that hadn't tried to push back yet. I mean, there was Rachel Carson and and um, uh, unsafe at any speed, or maybe that was more a safety issue. But um, until the, until there was movement to regulate these things, there was no reason to push back. And right. then when they started pushing back, then it started. Um, then that bipartisanship went away. No, I think there's something to that, and I I actually think bringing in Nader is completely relevant here. The safety is relevant it, or is not? Yeah, it is. Okay, it is. Uh-huh. I'd put you know that is, you know, the big shift in the seventies, and it would it, the the all the environmental statutes I mentioned were actually part of, I think, a larger shift. Um, which was a complete sort of change in the focus of what it is the federal government was going to regulate. So historically, regulation had been very much sort of economic regulation, you know, prices, um, wages to some extent, you know, giving trucking routes, giving, you know, which, which railroad, which airline, which trucking company carried potatoes from Boise to San Francisco and so on some limitation of prices and and so on, traditional economic regulation, which is now wholly out of favor and, and mainly appropriately so. Um, and the big shift in the 70s was to protection of public health, the environment, consumers. And um, pro- so product safety, you know, the Nader stuff, the the uh, Rachel Carson stuff, you know, which was partly about environment, environment, but you know, largely about about public health. I mean, it was it was, and and the modern environmental movement is actually, and, and this has just become stronger and stronger. It's about public health, right? It's it is it is about people more than the environment. It's both, of course, right? But the real push is about, you know, <laughs> people shouldn't be getting sick from pollution more than it's about, you know, I love nature. Um, and and right. so, and, and all these things, right, unsafe products and protecting consumers from sharp practices and unsafe products, protecting health, protecting safety. OSHA is also 1970, right? Uh-huh. It's a, the same phenomenon that, that the economic system we have um, has a bunch of market failures which justify regulation and that actually the stuff we were regulating before was not necessarily the result of a market failure and maybe one should let markets do their magic over here with like you know i mean jimmy carter was the most deregulatory president in in history because he was abandoning all this traditional economic regulation while you know we were shifting to this massive regulation of health safety and the environment yeah. And I hear the, those protections. It feels to me like this is life, liberty, and property, and which I feel like I, I, those that phrase I associate with libertarianism and uh, a, a level playing field to, to allow competition in order for innovators to get the resources to innovate, that I also associate with conservatism. And I, so a big thing for me is in terms of getting popular, 
this this environment that you talked about when there was bipartisan support, yeah. That seems to me the target. That seems to be the most important thing. If it leads to an amendment, or it, then if we have that, then there'll be general support for whatever is most effective for what the people want. Right now, that's not there because there's various different ways of looking at the situation. Some people would say, well, all this regulation is, is tying, is a lot of red tape. But no one says the 13th Amendment is causing red tape. And there's not some big bureaucracy of like the Anti-Slavery Enforcement Bureau. Uh, some of it but, is. Some of it is just, yeah, it's not, it's a, it, does it require a regulatory apparatus to ban lead in gasoline or to ban plastic bags in New York City like that it just see that there are some things some things the state can and should do that don't require a lot of regulation but just you know it's it's, yeah well I mean when you look at the different kinds of environmental tools out there bans you know bans as you say are easy right right Um, and you know what's tricky is restrictions as opposed to bans right Here's how much of this activity you can gauge in. Here's the, you know, you have to limit your emissions of sulfur dioxide to, you right. know, X pounds per million BTU, right? Right. And you have to monitor that and you have to figure out how you're going to express the rule. And, you know, it gets it, that does get pretty complicated. Bands are clean. And, yeah, literally yeah. speaking. Yeah. And yeah. also very rare, <laughs> you know, very rare. I, I, I I had a question. You, you, Josh, you raised that the, the famous book by Eric Williams on capitalism and slavery. And one of the one of the things that uh, Stanton and others were assuming was that the ordinary workings of a free labor economy would eventually overwhelm the uh, slave economies, which are not capable of the dynamism. And and it, and it raises the question for me about what role the the capitalist economy now has in making what you and we all want impossible or ultimately maybe the opposite no i have a have a marxist friend who writes a lot about the the environment who just switched positions recently he's still a marxist but said you know what they're figuring out fusion and they figured out carbon, carbon capture, and it's going to take the state to subsidize these kinds of things. But the, as he put it to me, the bourgeoisie has figured this out, right? And that. they know how to do this. And now we have other things we have we have to worry about. There's a kind of it's it's almost Stantonesque, right? There's something inevitable about you know that he's a, there's an inevitability to the economic system that he's. He's attributing, and I'm not sure I believe that. I don't really know what's going to happen in the future. But, but you know, I'm, when I think of a constitutional amendment like the Thirteenth Amendment, what the first thing we think of the Thirteenth Amendment is something you know frees individual people, but it also destroys an economic system. Right? It destroys a very different way of organizing the economic system of the slave states. You know, and and uh, I'm not sure whether a constitutional amendment, you know, guaranteeing I know, a right to a clean environment, uh, what it what it would be up against in the well, economics I think, we live I, in. I, I, I think 
Jim, the, what you're just saying ties completely into the point you were making before about the amendment has to be interpreted and implemented. And, right. And so one of the reasons that you could have and enforce an amendment that completely destroyed an economic system is that it was largely destroyed by the war already. And these were right. defeated states against yes. whom it was being applied. Right. In, you know, if we had a constitutional amendment, right to a clean environment or ban on pollution, and we're going to apply it with real teeth, and the result was wild economic disruption, would the courts and would the EPA actually see that through, regardless of how perfectly it was worded? Because it's not just right. wording, right? You know, right. I mean, in the real world, probably not. Probably not. No. No. I'm going to bring but in, and, the, and I will say, you know, and there are a lot of states and various other countries that have such amendments, and they're not transformative in, you know, in practice. They're not even, right? but they're not transformative. I mean, if, if you had to say, you know, look at all the American states and, you know, where are the ones with an amendment and map that against how powerful their environmental laws are or do that right. for countries, you know, you could probably find some correlation. But even then, it might not be causation, right? And uh, the same instinct that led to them passing the amendment led to them having strong environmental laws. Um, right. So it's it's a it's a hard thing to disentangle. Um, yeah, yeah. So I want to bring the, you know the 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 point that the anti-slavery folks were making was that slavery was a drag on the economic development of the South, and if you free up the labor system, you know the the South would you know enter the the advanced world economies and, you know, become prosperous and things like that. And it didn't work out that way. Whether it didn't work out that way because because they were wrong about the economic system or because the political system hadn't been transformed enough, it's an interesting question. But they, they were assuming that if you abolished slavery, the economy would improve. And I'm not sure how we would, you know, we, we could say, you know, there are these market failures, and if you, you know, correct for them legally, whether constitutionally or statutorily, in the long run, the economy will benefit. But if, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how it would play out. So, sorry, can I just interrupt for one second? Yeah. On my screen, my yeah, face it looks is long. frozen. Is it frozen on yours, too? Yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. Huh. But I think everyone watching this knows that Zoom does this. <laughs> and it pops you back think in it's every a now Zoom and then. issue. No, okay. I presume it is, and it's possible okay. that this is being recorded not on my computer where I'm seeing you frozen, but on the cloud. So it may, it's possible that on the cloud is okay. Okay, Sarah, I've and had I ones where the frozen. the audio was no good, but the uh, right. I heard the audio terrible, but the recording is fine. Okay, so I'm hoping that that's the case. All right. Anyways, I see you be back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it looks okay. like if that Sorry. does happen, maybe pop it off and pop just it, pop it yeah. off and back. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. There are two things that, uh, actually, it's better that you do that because then people who are watching, if that is happening, then they know that we're, at least have their interests at heart and trying to help them out. <laughs> and all right, so there's two things that are coming up here that I want to talk about that, that are areas of research for me. One of them, you mentioned fission and nuclear infusion and other technologies, and then also uh, the economic system. And I'll mention these things. I'm not sure if I'll create more discussion or uh, get to a place where we can say, okay, let's... Um, well, okay. With regard to fusion, with regard to technology, um, so I also research a lot about. I mean, I have a PhD in physics, and so I research. And I once felt 
fusion will answer everything. Once we get to fusion, carbon-free energy, too cheap to meet or things like that. But the more that I look at it, the more that it, that doesn't seem a solution that, um, for one thing, if you have a system that pollutes a lot, even if you make part of it clean, if you drive that system faster, there'll be more pollution in other areas. But even beyond that, there's a paper that came out by another guest of this podcast in, um, in Nature that fusion, you know, you, you know that nuclear reactors need water to cool them, meaning that they heat the water. So whatever you do, you're going to create excess heat. And right now, industry is creating a bit of heat. Now, compared to solar radiation, it's very little. But exponential growth, we humans are very poor at understanding exponential growth, even we who understand exponentials. And 29th day. Yeah. And so the time, so he's, for people who don't know, it's like if you have a pond that's being covered by lily pads and every day it doubles, when on the 30th day it's completely covered, what day was it half covered? And you're tempted to think, well, it should be 15 days, but it's the day before. And so the day before it's completely covered. You have no sense that it's about to be completely covered. And exponential growth is like that. In the case of if we have industry that is growing by a certain percent a year and is producing some measure of heat, even assuming the most decoupling you could imagine, we're still physical creatures, then the time it takes for the industry heating the globe to be comparable or match what the sun is heating the globe is on the order of a human lifetime, less than a human lifetime, if I remember right. Look up the, I mean, I'll, I'll put in the notes the, the link, meaning that even a fraction of that would be heating the globe up yet faster. And we're like one and a half degrees, one degree, one degree, one and a half degrees. So fusion doesn't solve things. Fusion just delays, it, it creates a different type of pollution that we have no way of getting around. If we knew how to get rid of that heat, we would, but we don't. So I propose fusion not being a solution, that we, for the sake of argument, consider that fusion not be a solution. Now, about carbon capture? Again, that would only address climate. It would not address deforestation, aquifers being depleted, yeah, things are. like that. And if you right. say, well, we can desalinate, well, then we're taking energy from other areas and the economy gets hit in lots of other ways. And if you put it all together, my understanding is that it would be nice to imagine we could solve this, we could solve this, we could solve this, we could solve this, but it, it when you put it all together, it doesn't work. Right. Then the other thing is about, you, you mentioned capitalism, Marxism, I've also researched, I've also been getting a lot into um, anthropology, and that's kind of fun. And uh, the from an anthropological perspective, most of human history we lived as um, uh, what's the term? Um, immediate return hunter gatherers. We, we there was great equality among um, old versus young, male versus female, and that's how it was for most of the time. And then in the past. 10,000 years or so, hierarchies formed. How did hierarchies form? My understanding is that they formed through when two conditions, when there's a resource that can be controlled and there's no alternative to it, then one group, if they control that resource, they're going to form a hierarchy and subjugate the others. And that subjugation tends to persist. So when I see a hierarchy, I tend to think, well, what's the resource that's being controlled? So in the slave South, there were huge... I mean, cotton would be the big one, that and and access to to um, weapons and a legal system that enabled a hierarchy to form, and as long as they could control that resource, they were very stable. Whether it's good or bad or right or wrong, it's still stable. 
we today have an economic system where fossil fuels and, and this would be augmented by fission and fusion. It makes a very stable, whether good, bad, right, or wrong is another story, but a very stable economic system that's very dip, difficult to displace. And it's hierarchies tend to lead to subjugation and tend to lead to suffering and things like that. So to me, one of the big things, one of the big issues is as long as we have this resource that we depend on, that can be controlled. I mean, you, if you can control the mines and the wells, uh, where you're getting the uranium from and the materials for the batteries and things like that, then a, a small number of people can control everything or control. I'm sorry, can create a high, I should not overstate things. But they can create a very stable system that's very difficult to displace. If we don't need that resource, then that dominance hierarchy goes away. If we don't if, make that, if, as, as long as we depend on that resource, that hierarchy will remain and we'll have a situation that we can't, it's very difficult to get rid of. I don't know if I've, if I've so, gone too far I, afield. Yeah, we've gone too, well, I feel this is, um, you've, gone, you've gone beyond my area of expertise, I would put it that way. <laughs> uh, what I feel, I mean, the more that if I learn about if this. The re I have a question, though. If the resource is finite uh -huh. and is known to be finite, are the, for lack of a better word, are the capitalists not capable of recognizing that they've got to do something else because their resource on which they depend is finite? Well, I want to run out of oil. It's not just right? run out. There, there are two regimes. If we have too little oil, we could run out, and then the system built on, on oil and fossil fuels can't persist. Right. And then you could say, well, if fusion would happen, then while well, there's issues of, of exponential growth still end up using, using stuff up. But um, there's another regime in which there's too much because we pollute. So you can, you can, a system can, can choke itself to death as well. Right. So if we have too much, that's also an issue. So some people say running out of oil, running out of fossil fuels would be would be helpful because it will stop us from um, choking ourselves to death. Not choking, but poisoning ourselves. So it's not just uh, having well, too little. It could my, be having my too question much. is it, my question is more about so can a market get around that? And there's look, a, there's another movie you talked about uh, this, the Lincoln movie. There's a I don't know if you saw uh, a Beautiful Mind where he realizes that. Um, uh, John Nash is stumbling onto game theory and realizes that there could be a better solution, but if there's no way from this point to that point, you may never reach that point. So I believe that we can, we find ourselves in a very stable system where, yeah, in principle, there's, there may be a better solution over there, but we can't get there as long as we have this very stable hierarchy created uh, that's based on controlling this resource. I, what... The reason I'm one of the reasons I mention this is that it keeps bringing me back to something that I think appeals broadly to people who believe in small government, people who believe in in certain inalienable rights. That, that is the role of however small government is. It is the role to protect life, liberty, and property. And these and pollution fundamentally destroys those things. Now, if so, I've been I've mistakenly. Michael, you corrected me earlier in this conversation about how I felt like the government, the, the, the Constitution does 
offer some protection to um, a fossil fuel company that has certain value. I mean, to me, it seems like they have a certain, they would say they have a certain value in their assets based on what they can extract with them. And mm-hmm. if we were to, if the government were to say you can't do that, they would say, well, that's we've you've taken away a lot of our value, and they would fight back and, and to, to protect and, and they would fight back. But their constitutional <laughs> arguments are pretty pretty narrow and limited and not likely to be successful. I mean, look at I mean, there's an extraordinary amount of regulation in place as it is. It's inadequate, but it's enormous and expensive. Um, you know, the the compliance costs for contemporary environmental regulations are, you know, just breathtaking. And, um, you know, if there was a meaningful and, and lots of people have been put out of business, right? Uh, but, and there's not a there's not a really good constitutional challenge to that. Um, I think the bigger thing is, you know, when you say, well, you know, the small government people, the conservatives, the libertarians, you know, there there is a fundamental difference between people whose view every most rational people will say. There's such a thing as too much pollution. And most rational people will say if the market is left alone, it's unregulated, it will almost certainly produce too much pollution. And it's appropriate to regulate, to restrict polluting activity because you know, pollution is a classic externality, it's a classic market failure. Right. Most mainstream economists would say there's also such a thing as too little pollution. You can overregulate, right? If you max, if, if your only concern is getting rid of pollution, and you don't take into account the benefits of the polluting activity, you're going to lose. You're going to you're going to come out behind. It's inefficient. You want the right amount of pollution, and that's just sort of the fundamental divide between folks who approach these questions in terms of efficiency. And folks who inter- approach them in terms of values slash ecological slash human health parts. And I think that you can't put a price on human health. We should leave nature alone. Less pollution is always better, right? By definition, if you can pollute less, you should. And, you know, that's sort of the Spodek position. But most people aren't there, right? Um, and, you know, if you go to like public policy schools, most people aren't there. Um, they're more in the we should have the right and perfectly happy to say markets will overpollute and perfectly many of them happy to say we still are allowing too much pollution, but would think that it's a wrong-headed goal to say we should eliminate. That's just sort of a fundamental public policy divide, and it's about two different views of the world. Um, and the more mainstream view is there's such a thing as too little pollution. Now, to my ears, that sounds like what people said before, that some people said well, we should regulate slavery and we should have it in some places, not others. And and when I hear... when Right, and the, then the question is, you know, are these equivalent kinds of problems, right? And there's obviously a central moral dimension to the slavery issue. And it's less obvious there's a central moral dimension to the pollution issue. For many people, there is. And and maybe those who deny it are benighted, but it's not 
built into the debate or the problem. Well, the, it, there's the moral issue, and there's another issue, which is that if it's um, is it something that can be contained? Like it feels to me, and you guys might know better than I do. If if you have slavery anywhere, you just can't contain it. I mean, it may be that if it's inefficient and it may die on its own, but if it doesn't die on its own, then slave owners are going to want to be able to travel to slates that are free states and come back and still own their slaves. I, I, it feels like slave. If you have slavery, it will. The slave owners will try to expand. They will. I'll let the historian answer that one. No, I, I, and I think I'm with you, Michael. I think that there's a certain a certain way in which the analogy fails because the problem of slavery is just fundamentally different in some way from the problem of pollution. That we can live, and 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 I suppose the pragmatists would say we have to live with a certain amount of pollution, whereas a Living with a certain amount of slavery is is hard to imagine. It's, it's hard I mean, to here's imagine. one of the things I sometimes ask my classes to, to sort of isolate the moral side of this is what do we what do you think of someone who says, you know, who drives some you know a Lamborghini, a Hummer? Okay, I don't know if they still make Hummers, but you know, just just an outrageous, polluting, gas guzzling monstrosity, and who says. You know, Hummers should be illegal. Okay. Hummers should be illegal. It's crazy to allow people to drive around in cars that are this waste and this polluted. But unless and until they're outlawed, I'm going to drive around in one. I'm not a schmuck. And what I do makes no difference. And this becomes a question, Josh, very much about your project, right? Yeah. Um, the way you're living your life. Um, and... You know, when it comes to slavery, we, you know, I think someone who said, well, slavery should be illegal, but unless and until they outlaw slavery, I'm going to, I'm going to keep slaves, which, you know, a certain number of slaveholders, some of them who became presidents said, right? Yeah. But we look at that and we think that's actually morally objectionable. At the like, time, though, they really, didn't. Was that? At the time, though, they didn't. At that time, they didn't. That's right. And, but, um, and I, but they did you know, think, I, they did say, you know, ultimately, even Thomas Jefferson, nothing is so clearly written in the Book of Fate, but that these people ultimately must be free. Ultimately, there can't be any well, slave. Jim's I, book, The Ruling Race, which is about the demographics and the beliefs of, of slave owners, what, to me, it was, I mean, there's a quote in there, slave, uh, democracy requires slavery. I'm taking it out of context. Without slavery. I'm, so I'm taking it out of context, but some people said yeah, things right. like that. Yeah. And yeah. there's a quote about right. this guy who went, I, I was on the train to South Carolina. No, to, uh, yeah, to Charleston, South Carolina. It talked about a guy who moved to South Carolina, totally opposing slavery. And then a little right. while later, he's saying, well, uh, I, I didn't want to get slaves, but it really, I can't do anything about it. I have to. It's so corrupting. Right. Well, we, I mean, we would say corrupting, but I think they wouldn't say well, they felt some of them felt corrupting, but others felt like oh, it's, we would look at right. it. You, we would look at it and say, the proof of its corrupting nature is how corrupted they were that they could say this, right? Um, right. But, but, you know, part well, of the issue, part of the issue about environmental problems, um, is that you know the profound environmental crisis we're in. 
is the product of a gazillion individually trivial actions. And impressive, though, how you are living your life is, Josh, it's not directly, directly having an impact, right? Because right. what you do or don't do doesn't matter, right? Um, divided by 8 billion and zero. Exactly, right. Now, part of, and so there are two ways, I, 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 I as I understand, and now you should really explain it, that, that you have two ideas or two justifications. One is essentially the moral one. This is how people should live. It's kind of a Kantian point that the moral thing to do is the thing that if everyone did it, that would be right, right? And the second is you actually think it has strategic benefit. Benefit. As a model, as a goad, as an inspiration, as you know, something that will gather steam, right? A few people, and then suddenly more and more, will in fact directly change. It will in fact get to a point where it will be big enough to have an impact, and/or it will lead to voting and political change. Um, and and those are two very distinct kinds of justification. So and I don't want to put words in your mouth for why you live the way you do. Yeah, broadly speaking, there is, I don't want to hurt others. And I, I don't believe you can pollute without hurting someone else. Well, in today's, in, in, in today's world. Yeah, though your pollution doesn't hurt anybody. It's, it's not measurable. Everybody, no, no one, Jim and I are not better off because you are polluted. Here's a question I've been asking people lately is, uh, imagine... Someone, all right, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that my difference doesn't make a difference. But I can't talk, I, I have no integrity to speak about not polluting, and nor do I know what it means to pollute less if I haven't tried it, if it's purely right. theoretical. It's like um, trying to teach piano, never having played piano, and instead hitting, it, hitting pianos with sledgehammers or even, or even small hammers. It's not the same as learning how to play. And so as a leadership exercise for my personal growth and, and, and learning of what it really means, uh, I have to play my scales in order to, to perform at Carnegie Hall. Now, that's not to say that performing at Carnegie Hall is playing scales. It's lots of other stuff, but enabled by playing scales. So I'm playing scales to some degree. I'm living by my values. But it's, it's the leadership exercise. What does it mean to play Carnegie Hall in this context is to lead large groups of people to want to change to embrace it as something that would improve their lives. But I, I want to get to something that, um, um, all right, the earth, the, the biological, ecological processes of the earth do process things. There were forest fires before humans existed and the smoke could be poisonous to people, but the environment processes it and turns it back into new trees. I mean, and I want to say before humans because the lightning can strike trees and, and likewise animals poop before humans were existed. So, uh, that's not necessarily, that's something that Earth can handle. That tells me, all right, I agree to some extent, we can pollute. If pollution includes things like smoke and poop, yes, certain amounts are fine because, and, and perhaps there could be some formula that could be figured out relative to the uh, size of the population, relative to whatever's in, but there's some things that can't be reversed. There's some things or some things that like, never existed before humans, like um, the forever chemicals, PCBs, uh, plastic, plastic. I mean, on a scale of a thousand years, can break down, but in the meantime, it's it's pretty toxic. So it does seem some things accumulate, and maybe it mm -hmm. would be maybe zero is the right amount for some things. 
and other things, maybe there'd be some complicated formula, but I would be comfortable saying if we, if everyone in the United States dropped 90%, as I did in under three years, and found that it improved their lives, I'd be pretty happy with that. I, maybe, maybe it's not zero. Maybe there'd be some amount yeah. that would be okay of the things that nature can reprocess. Because I also think that if, if say, 3 to 30 million Americans drop 90%, or just say like 200 million drop 50%, I think that at that stage, there'd be a lot of major beliefs that would have shifted, that people would not just think, you know, we must do what it takes to make progress. Progress, I put in quotes, but what they believe is progress. And if that ends up polluting, so be it. But I think if we all dropped a lot and found that, oh, maybe we didn't need to do that, and not just efficiency gains, because efficiency can just accelerate a system, but also just lifestyle changes to where we don't live flying distance apart, where our cities have, you know, don't have so many highways in them and instead are walkable and rideable and, and people feel like, oh, I like that more. So if a goal, if I, if I take my goal, maybe some long-term out beyond my lifetime, zero, but within my lifetime, enough that we feel like, oh, this is like we've changed that, that may trigger a change of values widespread. That would that may still have a, an amendment being of um, symbolic value, which from a leadership perspective is not zero. I mean, mm -hmm. flags, for example, are, are very valuable. Uniforms are very valuable, and uh, well, symbolic value can be very important. There's always a question. You know, you <laughs> you early on in this conversation brought up the question of opportunity costs, right? You want to know right at the beginning is it worth doing because everything has opportunity costs, right? Um, are you better off pouring effort into something with symbolic value or pouring effort into something with, you know, tangible direction? I mean, a classic one in environmental, every once in a while someone says, you know what, EPA should really be a cabinet. We should have a department of the environment that should be part of the cabinet. And that's of absolutely no legal consequence whatsoever. Right? Just doesn't matter. We give EPA no more actual legal authority in any way. Um, but it would be some symbolic indication that we care about environmental protection, that this is an agency that is central to the well-being and governments of the country as all the other departments. I've always thought that that's a misuse of political chips to try and, to try and accomplish that one. Okay, yeah. That's one where it's so purely symbolic, but would actually be kind of a lift. And of course, the thing about getting people to do anything, including symbolic, is once they've done it, they say, okay, that problem is solved. And it makes it harder to do the next thing often, rather than gathering momentum. It might gather momentum, but more often they, they've done what they're going to do. Um, so, you know, would I rather there was the Department of the Environment that all other things being equal? I suppose so. But, you know, that one, that one feels symbolic in a kind of negative way. Constitutional amendments are symbolic, as, as you just said, as I said before, and, and in a more substantial way. There's something of real value there. I agree. Right. Wow. So, uh, Josh, I, I, I wonder, I, I think there's, there's real value also in, in modeling behavior. But, I, you know, there was a movement among abolitionists, for example, to boycott slave-produced goods, right? That's... Don't don't use sugar. Don't wear cotton clothes. And it it 
it, it ultimately flagged that it was, you know, it was, it didn't, it's not what worked. Right. And I, I wonder if um, the model you are living is going to have the opposite effect, that people are going to look at what you do, what the way you've chosen to live and say, that's inconceivable. So that's, so, that's just so far off the grid. Yeah, that it will, will give me something more realistic to you know that's I, why I, the point i was making here at the very beginning about henry stanton it was give me steps along the way you know and 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 uh you know and you know i'm not a libertarian i think you know or think you know bans are easy but regulation is necessary and i'm prepared to have you know the state step in and i don't know Make things that are now not market feasible feasible because the state is subsidizing carbon capture or something like that. It's not the ultimate solution. It's not the end. But for the time being, it might just stave off something. In the meantime, we'll do other things. But, you know, step by step. But 90% off the grid may just strike people as, well, it's the problem I said uh, that that we discussed when you sent me the New Yorker order. Yeah, said that, it made it made you seem more eccentric than I think you are. I appreciate it. Yeah, and <laughs> I got a lot of that, and I was really. <laughs> so I said to that reporter, "I know that the talk of the town is about look at this quirky eccentric person," and I wanted right. to make it clear. I, I made it clear to him, "I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this as a leadership exercise." Right. And he said, "Okay, get you know." bring in some leadership clients. And I got a guy from BCG and I got a guy from Exxon and I got a guy from another oil company I can't say the name of, but it's you know an Exxon peer. And they all said to him, working with Josh makes working on sustainability enjoyable and, and uh, rewarding. And they all said in slightly different words, what he does is essential and no one else is doing it. And that did not make it in. He just wrote yeah. about, he said, okay, here's this, this quick guy. What I'm right. doing, and I, one of the other big things I'm working on is my book and how to get this message out is in corporate speak, it's a mindset shift followed by continual improvement. And my step of unplugging my apartment from the grid compared to my, the step before that was to unplug my apartment for 24 hours. And that was it. And that's not so crazy, especially because at that point I'd unplugged my fridge for a while, which wasn't so crazy. When you look at the article that I read that talked about how many, many places don't use refrigerators at all in Vietnam being the, the case in point for that article. Each step is small. We overestimate what we can do in a day and underestimate what we can do in a year. And I've been doing this for a long enough time that I'm taking lots of little steps and I'm trying to oppose this getting away from an amendment conversation, but I'm trying to oppose this, all these articles and this thing that says, you know, here's 10 little things you can do for the environment. And it makes people feel like, well, I'll do five or seven or three. I'll do my part, but I have to balance the sacrifice and deprivation of for the, at this abstract good. I have to balance that with my life. The mindset shift says, well, in in my case, and the people, I, I don't think I did the spoken method with either of you on the podcast, when you were on my podcast, but it it gives people the mindset shift and leads them to where they can start doing these little steps. So if I don't say ever and do what I do, my copy me, it's you can do in your life, in your way, in improving your life, you can achieve for yourself, for you, what I've achieved in my life, but it'll look in your life differently. 
but you will find it an improvement if you'd like clean air, clean land, clean water, things like that. But it has to come from where the person is. So I'm struggling with the media. <laughs> Please don't just represent the superficial thing that you see at the top. That would be like, I mean, it would be uh, using the Carnegie Hall example, seeing someone playing Rachmaninoff and being like, well, I don't even want to start playing piano. You start with scales. And I want to get people to realize if you play scales, you will reach that level. Maybe you'll play jazz or pop instead of Rachmaninoff, but but I'm not saying do exactly what I do. But everyone hears no, that. But your, so, your solution at what you've done is, is an individualistic solution, whereas Henry Stanton was proposing a series of political solutions. So how do you translate what you're doing into a political yeah, I guess, solution? Well, before Stanton, there were people who, there was, in 1839, there were already free states. So people had lived without slaves, but, which hadn't happened. Right, because the states abolished slaves, legislatures abolished them. They were, you know, a, a revolution was built into the first state constitution. So it's a legal political process that gets people to the point where they're living in societies and in states where there's no slave. Before, so, the, uh, before the legal process, there must have been some people who freed their slaves first. Well, there are always people I, who freed their slaves, but I don't think that's where abolitionism doesn't come from people who freed their slaves. Well, I'm, I'm not saying... Yeah, I'm just one person acting as best I can so far. Right. And right. I, I understand that. It's just the question is that it's a two-pronged question, right? To what extent is the model you are presenting, and you're presenting yourself as a model? That's all I got so far. That's all I got. I'm not done. But, but I, right, agree, it, but I, I think I, you're I, saying I want, I want a political. I, 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 you know, my whole everything I've been writing for the last 15 years is is to say, you know, William Lloyd Garrison can stand up and shout that you know slavery is slaveholders are sinners, and you know. We need moral suasion. But the fact is, it took a political move, a series of political... I'm not opposing a political movement, I'm, nor in I any know, way I am I saying... So let me ask it this way. So Wait, hold on. Wait, I got to say this. I got to no, say this. No. All right. <laughs> to start a political movement, to, to start a political movement without oneself living by the values that you want others to live by, I think engenders opposition. People... So the goal is a political movement. Yes. But I think systemic, a couple of things I say a lot, systemic change begins with personal change and you can't lead someone else to live by values that you live the opposite of. So when Al Gore starts a political movement, but himself doesn't live by the values that that movement would, li would lead to, he gets people to say, well, you don't do it, so I'm not going to do it either. And also if it, if, when I first started doing these experiments of, say, avoiding packaged food, there was a part of me that said, I hope it doesn't work so that I don't have to try. Right. Only when I but, found that it improved my life could I then act. But this is not where I want to stop. I do not want yeah, to but, stop here. I want to engage community. I want to do those but, things. But I felt like this was the first necessary step. Not wanna, sufficient, but necessary. Let me ask Jim's question, slightly rephrase, what I think is Jim's question, slightly rephrased. So your little tagline is, correct me if I'm wrong, individual action leads to systemic change. Is that it, how it goes? It, it is it the can, step towards 
you won't get systemic change without individual change, but that doesn't mean that individual change will lead to systemic change. I'm just wondering what the mechanism is. The, the key How mechanism do we get is that if from you the don't... individual action to the systemic change, what's the mechanism? The big thing is that if you don't have the individual change, you don't have systemic change. I mean, it can happen through other means, but you can't deliberately make it happen. So it's, it's, it's a block. Yeah. I think that it fuels the opposition to say, you should do this, but actually what I'm doing is so important that I have to not do it. Because no one thinks that what they're doing is unimportant. So if, if, if I say pollute less, but what I'm doing is so important, I must still keep polluting. Everyone else says, well, what I'm doing is important too. So I, I, I think that leads to a lot of people saying everyone should stop polluting, but I won't. But I'll tell other people to. So I, part of what I'm doing is out of frustration. I think that we need, I, I, to me, I don't know if I'm overstating this, but it feels like people owning slaves saying don't own slaves. Well, I mean, for one thing, those statues get taken down by future generations those names get taken off the, the buildings. But I think it also slows things down. I mean, Jefferson comes to mind is, is how do people feel about Jefferson, his racist beliefs and owning slaves while speaking about freedom for everyone? Could he have been more effective had he, had he emancipated his slaves? You know, uh, I'm, I'm, less, I'm less bothered by hypocrisy. I know the Hypocrites are a dime a dozen. Yeah, it's not hypocrisy. If you don't have, it's if it well, in, the inability to live up to your ideals, to advocate things that you know that you yourself can't in the in the immediate present live by, doesn't strike me as a problem. I, it's not so. It's not. I'm not saying they're hypocritical. I'm saying that they they lack credibility. Or also another big thing is they're ineffective. Yeah. yeah. And also, they don't know what they're talking about. If The analogy I use here is if I, so I can tell someone, if you want to build muscles, go to the gym. Lifting the weights, there's a whole, what, do you, what happens when you get injured? What happens when your friends say, oh, you, you'll never achieve that? What happens when uh, you know, diet and sleep add up, factor into it? There's all these other things. And what happens when you feel like if giving I, up? Yeah, but you have, you have, over the course of the past hour or so, invoked life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness several times. That's you're invoking Jefferson, right? It doesn't bother you that you're invoking Jefferson. It shouldn't bother you that you're invoking Jefferson, you know? No, well, actually, he kept invoking life, liberty, and property. property. Yes, yeah, in the Constitution Jefferson. rather than in the uh, Declaration. Right. Right. And right. So it seems to me that, uh, so we're getting close to the end of the, the allotted time. And I feel as if there's definitely no slam dunk that a constitutional amendment on, on a right to a clean environment or banning pollution, no slam dunk, yes. Uh, Look, ha having been sort of dubitante, let me just say two, a couple of things about it. Um, w one is... <clears throat> There's more interest in one or another version of this idea now than there has been at any time in the last 50 years. Um, that is, say, there is a trend, a trend in this direction. Um, I mean, I have a long ways to go and so on, but 
you know, New York State just adopted a right to a clean environment in its constitution. There's stuff going on at the UN. There's stuff going on in, I mean, internationally, there's a lot of interest in this. And so a, a sort of rights-based approach to environmental protection is is ascendant right now. Uh, so that's point one. Um, and point two is there's just a, just a glimpse with the current court being so disappointing to progressives that you're, there's just a hint that in a way that wasn't true even a year ago, that progressives are starting to think about constitutional amendment as a tool. I mean, since, say, the Warren court, the progressive instinct has been not to amend the Constitution, but to get the court to read it the way we'd like to read it. And now progressives have a court that just is not going to do that. And they're stuck with it for the foreseeable future. And so, you know, this is wholly apart from the question of an environmental. This is just a question of the viability or the mainstreamness of the idea of amending the Constitution, which has never been a mainstream idea, right? Because it's very hard to amend and it's rarely amended. Um, and most of the amendments are trivial. They're constitutional amendments, but you know they're about modest structural adjustments, not about profound questions of right. Um, and I do think that, like I just said, there's going to be a, a conference in the middle of February at the NYU Law School about constitutional amendments. Should we start paying attention to amendments given the situation we find ourselves? I think that you can see. So, so in those two ways one specific to environmental amendments and one about kind of interest in constitutional revisions, constitutional amendments generally, given that the mechanism of relying on the court to read things broadly or in the way we wish is, is off the table for now. I think that, you know, you're a little bit on the side of history right now. Things are moving, how far they'll go, you know, always one never knows. But you know, there's there's a perceptible shift in the direction that interests me so much. So I feel like from my very first thought of banish the thought, it's also not a, a huge slam dunk, no. But if someone had to pick one or the other, I think most people would go, you guys would it'd be like, probably not work on it. But the, there's a bigger issue, which is strategy. And how this fits in, and how I a big one is how I am perceived. Am I blowing people out of the water with having gone so far? Or to and, my view, is how do I explain myself in such a way that people say that's achievable? Right. Like the way that I think hopefully people would look at like a basketball star and say, well, I better go do my dribbling exercises if I want to get that good, as opposed to, oh, they're so good, I don't even want to try. Or, and that, that, it, that's it, independent it, of an amendment. It, right. Add. It's a, it, there is a way in which, if it were me, uh -huh. it's not that you need to change anything you're doing. It's that I think presenting what you've done um, Maybe it's not that 
you're not modest, but so to say, you know, I'm not saying you need to do this, go as this fall, <laughs> but there are things, you know, I, I can show you that how far it's possible to go and you don't have to go that far and nobody, and I don't expect people to go that far. It's a little, it's a little kind of, it's a, it's kind of individualistic version of the point Michael made earlier that you're not going to get people to accept no pollution because, you know, some pollution is necessary and you're showing how far you can go, but you don't need to present this as a model for where everyone should or has to go. Yeah. I, my PhD, you know, I had a choice in graduate school, theory or experiment. That's a broad difference in physics. And I went right. experiment. And the, the goal of an experimentalist is to find a theory and show something that that theory believes is impossible because then the theory is gone. And that send them back to the drawing right. board. That's the goal. Right. It's like prove a theory doesn't work through not right. proof, but show it a theory doesn't work through an experimental outcome. And so if someone says something's impossible, it's impossible to improve life without using more energy. Right. It's impossible to live without pollution. Then I want to show all I need to show if if something says something's impossible, I have to, uh, I need one case to show that's possible. So that's kind of what's one of the things that's driving me. Yeah. But right. most people aren't looking at it from that perspective. Although to me, I guess once it needed to prove it to myself because it could have not worked out. It could have made my life worse. And then, then I'd, you know, what's the phrase like party because tomorrow there's some Latin phrase of joy because tomorrow may die or something like that. Right. I would have done that if it didn't, if it led to a worse life. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We die. <laughs> yeah. Which is not exactly your message. Right. <laughs> well, it would have been had right. had my experiments not worked out. Yeah. Right. Well, let's wrap up. Uh, any, Can I just add, uh, I, I do have to go, but uh, uh -huh. I do want to say, notwithstanding whatever skepticism I've expressed, I do actually like the idea of a constitutional right to a clean world, to a clean environment. I, I think that's it. And I do think Michael's right that there, that there is... It's what Lincoln said about the Declaration. It's not the description of the world, but it sets a stand to which we aspire. And, and I think something like that, I think that's a good idea. I'm, if this opens things up instead of wrapping things up, tell me, but you distinguish between the 13th Amendment doesn't guarantee a right to, you know, you said a clean environment as or to... To a healthy environment. The 15th Amendment doesn't create a right to vote. It's, I wish it had. And I think a right to a clean environment is, you know, that would be more effective than I a 13th wish, Amendment style. I wish the style. Constitution was more explicit about a right to privacy than it is. But it isn't. It's pretty unexplicit. So, right. as much as, so Jimmy, you know <laughs> the 13th Amendment. But do you think that in the 18th century, the people were operating from the assumption that there was a such, that there was a private realm? Yeah. And a public realm, and that the private realm had to be protected. They just didn't put it in the Constitution. It wasn't framed that way. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's another issue. I'm less convinced that an explicit right to vote would be as important as you say. I, and I, I almost don't, it's not quite clear what it means, but I mean, what it really, you know, if we say there's a right to vote, <clears throat> I mean, there's, but, but most government positions are unelected 
I mean, would it mean we have to elect everybody? I don't know what it means, right? In other words, the right to vote is established by saying, you know, you know, well, it members just of the House have to be elected, right? Uh, I mean, all the voting issues are equality. Yeah, right? yeah. No, that's and right. That's right. I that's what they, it comes they, down to. They, they may well have found other ways. They probably would have found other ways to get it. I mean, does, it would violate, we could say it violates the right to vote that we don't, you know, the Attorney General of the United States is not an elected position, right? Whereas what we really are, care about are, uh, is an equal franchise. We don't, we, don't, violate... we don't say we have to vote on everything. We insist that the yeah. franchise be equal with the Yes. So focusing, as all the different voting amendments do, on equality right. is really, in fact, like, focusing on the key problem. Key right. Right. Jim, when you said you would like that amendment, you know, I know that you can quote the 13th Amendment backward and forward. So were you distinct? Would you... You would prefer an amendment guaranteeing a right to clean environment over one banning pollution? Yeah, I think so. But I and I, I can't say I've thought it through well enough. Okay. And Michael I, I mean, just I threw do... a monkey wrench in my thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both of them, both of them are would be unusual. Okay. Right. And Josh, we spoke about this before. Yeah. Um, it, uh, the the ban on pollution because for slightly different ways. The ban on pollution would be unusual in that, you know, what's basic understanding of what a constitution does is is empower and restrict the government, yeah. not empower and restrict private activity. So the big exception to that was prohibition, right? Where, um, which said you can't sell alcohol, the, the sale of alcoholic beverage, importation, et cetera, of alcoholic, intoxicating liquor prohibited. But even that, you know, required implementation legislation, the Volstead Act actually made that effective. Um, and the right to a clean environment is a little off because, you know, uh, this isn't built into a constitution, what I'm about to say, uh, but the U.S. Constitution is a whole series of negative rights. They say the whole series of provisions that says government can't do this to you, government can't do this to you, government can't do this, can't abridge your freedom of speech, you can't Restrict your pre-exercise of religion. It can't put you in prison without a trial. All that goes, all the ways government has to leave you alone. And the right to privacy, to mention, is the same kind of right. Right? They're all things where the government can't hurt you in certain ways. But a right to a clean environment is an affirmative. It's something the government has to do for you. And there was a point in the 60s and 70s where people kind of thought that the U.S. Supreme Court might start creating some affirmative rights. And there's a, it's very much part of the political discourse. We talk about a right to education or a right to a living wage or a right to health care or a right to a clean environment as if they exist somewhere. But they don't exist in the U.S. Constitution, and, they, and it's a quite outlier concept. Um, that Lots of European constitutions have affirmative rights. And, and I don't want to be heard to say there's something inherently unacceptable or inappropriate about affirmative rights. But it would be a very kind of bold outlier in the context of American constitutional history. So I'm at the edge of my seat and we're out of time. <laughs> I, I really have to go. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right. This is really thank, fascinating. Though. Yeah. Thank you both very much. And sure. uh, we'll we'll follow up on, offline and, and out of uh, Jimmy got to go. And but I'll talk to you both <laughs> soon offline and okay. maybe again here soon. We'll see. Thanks, Thank guys. you so much. 
Thanks again. Bye. Bye.